A quick warning, this podcast includes allegations of child sexual abuse, so listener discretion is advised. If any of the details are triggering, please talk to someone. If you're in New Zealand, you can call or text 1737 to speak with a trained professional. So we lived in Tancred Street, and it was an old house that had been sort of split in two. In early 1992, Mark was flatting with his brother, Peter Ellis, in a house to the east of Christchurch's city centre. So there was two flats. Peter had the one side, and it was a long hall, bit of an entranceway, um, then it was his room. Peter was spending quite a bit of time at home. He'd been fired from his job as an early childhood teacher after a child said, I don't like Peter's black penis. You went down the hall, and it was sort of a lounge kitchen and I was in the back of the house in a bedroom and the bathroom was directly across from me. So Peter, as Peter was, had all his menagerie of, had these little toy dogs and cats and they used to poop in the hall. So when I um, had to get across to the bathroom I'd always turn the light on but I wouldn't put my feet in in case I was gonna step on something once was enough. At first the police hadn't been able to find any evidence to make a case against Peter Ellis so the investigation was closed late in 1991. But some of the crash parents were still hearing disturbing stories from their children. The rumour mill kicked in. More interviews were held and at the end of January, just as everyone was settling into the new year, the police got something. Seven-year-old Mandy spoke out. She didn't actually attend the creche but said Peter Ellis had abused her while she was there picking up her younger siblings. So now we have a boy and a girl accusing Peter. On Wednesday the 19th of February 1992, the investigation was formally reopened. And it wasn't long before police would be knocking on Peter Ellis' door, demanding answers. This is Conviction, a podcast about the Civic Crash case, a case that divided communities in the 1990s and three decades later still does. I'm Ali Jones. And I'm Alexander Beza, and we're into episode four, Money Talks. The police must have a pretty strong case. I thought, well, I'm, we're going to see something now. It was an absolute mass hysteria. There were people crying and screaming and yelling and praying for blood. There are families, there are children, there are feelings, there are groups of people who will never reconcile. I'm not going to be much use. I was still in the UK when all that happened. You also wouldn't have a sense how your mum would have felt uh, at that time? Um, yeah, it, I mean, I can say categorically that it would have been um, extremely distressing for her. Mark would probably be the best person to talk to about the first night. <laughs> Hey Alex. Hello, how are you? Good, I'm just driving. I'll ring you in about five minutes. No worries, talk soon. Peter Ellis turned 34 on the 30th of March 1992. It was a Monday. 
It was also the day Detective Colin Ede and four other police officers arrived at Peter Ellis's door. In their hands, a search warrant. When the police came round looking for my child pornography, <laughs> boy, I'm sitting on a chair drinking my sherry. I talked to Peter, I can't even recall, numerous times for this podcast. I still find it hard to imagine what it was like for him as the police swooped on his house looking for evidence. And while he was happy to talk to me about the events of the day, he never let on how he felt about the day. So I rang his sister to see if she was able to help, but she said she was living in London and he didn't talk to her. She suggested that I'd call her brother Mark, who was living with Peter at the time the police raided the house. So I did call him. Initially was driving, but he called me back. Hello. Hello, Mark. Right, so I thought that was the answering machine. I was about to hang up. Oh. No, don't you hang up on me. How are you? Yeah, no, no, pretty good. Why I was calling, I wonder whether you recall anything about Peter's reaction to uh, the house being searched and the first time he got arrested. Peter was just Peter, you know, what Peter was like. I guess it's fair to say Peter had a quirky sense of humour, so even during the raid, that came through. They were starting to dig up the floorboards, and even now and again, someone would say, oh, there's a cat down here with kittens. They said, oh, can you start bringing them up, please? And one of the female police officers started, I mean, she started laughing, but the men, you know, you had Ede and Co. There was a couple of, a leg, it was another dickier one. My dog had puppies and I named them. There was Leggy, Heath, Jenkins, Edie, which is the one I kept named after Edie. I can't remember what the other one was called. Why am I getting to that? Oh, yeah. So it was getting to that because the kittens could have been a real problem for him. The next door neighbour, it was half a house, uh, they had a young child. And um, they left a cat, young female cat, locked in the house. And the poor little thing wanted to go to the toilet and they left all these clothes. She'd shit in the, and at least the only thing that she could cover up because they'd removed everything else. I said to him, I'll wash these clothes. So I had all these children's clothes. So they turned the place over. So off went all these children's clothes. Fortunately, of course, the landlord backed me up on that one. That's where they'd come from. <laughs> it was quite funny. I had a, um, um, a camera. And it was just like an ornament, but it was sitting on on a camera stand, you know, on a tripod. And they and they took the bloody thing away, and um, obviously uh, opened it up to see whether there was film in there. Of course, there wasn't any film in it. They just gave it back. But yeah, they took the camera out of my room. I remember just being so shocked and really feeling for Peter and thinking how frightened he must be and how hard it was going to be for him to stand up for himself because, you know, he wasn't the perfect person. Um, and yet, in my eyes, he was perfect, you know, there was nothing wrong with him. Um, but I knew that society wouldn't see it like that and I just felt very worried and frightened for him and I, and I took comfort in thinking that the police would do the right thing by him, that they would be able to sort this out. You know, for a long time I was very much of the belief that it's okay, we'll, we'll get to the bottom of this, it'll all get sorted out, everything will be okay and you know we'll just realize there were a few hiccups and a few mistakes were made 
and the wrongs will be righted. I did believe that. Debbie Gillespie, another creche teacher, was just stunned. I think most of us just assumed that if the police were saying these things, that Peter had done these things, then it had happened. And I, we were just shocked. You might imagine the creche families were relieved that action was being taken. But the aunt of one of the alleged victims, we're calling her Rose, says it hit different families in different ways at different times. We all accepted the reality at a different pace. And I found it very interesting. Um, I, I absorbed facts in a factual line and it was probably more than 24 hours before um, the facts were adding up a little for me, but for other people it was six months or longer or more or never. Rose, though, was certain of one thing. Once I'd, yeah, sorted things out at home, got to listen to all the stories, got to see what was happening next, I started to realise it was a case to answer. I certainly had no idea what, but I can tell you absolutely sure that at that point we were thought it would only be, have um, affected boys and that the inclusion of girls came as an absolute shock. It was a real moment for me. Back in 1991, a spokeswoman for the families told the press newspaper they were sick with worry as they waited for the investigation to run its course. The whole situation has turned into a nightmare for parents. They're living in fear that they'll discover their children have been abused. It's a horrifying situation, which is getting worse and worse. While officers finished searching his home, Peter was taken to the police station to be questioned by Colin Eid. The contrast between the two was like chalk and cheese. This is Rob Harrison, Peter Ellis's lawyer. He does it was a heavy set man physically, um, you know, it sort of looked like a weightlifter sort of a dude. Always came in with shirts that were maybe one size too small, so he seemed to be straining against that, always with the immaculately cropped hair, um, not a hair out of place, you know, immaculately dressed. And he had sit himself down at a desk and across from him was the antithesis of him, which was Peter. And Peter would be sitting there, um, he would have, uh, you know, maybe tracksuit pants on or, or, or something like that. He would be um, lolling back in the chair, he'd have one leg over the other, he'd have his hands crossed over his knees with long painted nails um, and a sort of quizzical look staring at this, um, this sort of, uh, <laughs> it was just like, it was just juxtaposition between the two of them. They were two worlds apart, two very, very different worlds between them. Harrison was a young Christchurch lawyer with only a few years of experience under his belt. He had been junior counsel on a couple of high-profile cases, including a case of physical violence against a four-year-old. He'd been running his own practice for two years and he was, as he said to me, basically running around after a criminal brief when this case popped up on his radar. By this stage, it was late in the day, so he was thrown into a cell overnight. So I spent my birthday in prison. So it's kept waking me up. They took my shoelaces off and kept waking me up. I said, I mean, I could sleep through anything. I said, it's 
suppose I was going to be suicidal. One would have thought that the only thing I was suicidal over was the fact they served me two, three meatballs that Susan DeVoy could have played squash with for about 10 years. Some potatoes that were so foul it wasn't funny and some t tin peas. I mean, I'd commit suicide over that lot anyway. Um, but, you know, they kept waking up. And that's because he kept me so that I couldn't get in front of a judge. So that was my birthday of the 1992. Alice went before the judge the next day. In the Christchurch District Court today, police told the judge more charges would follow involving several different complainants. The man was released on stringent bail conditions. He must remain at his inner city flat between 7 at night and 7 in the morning. The Civic Child Care Centre is out of bounds and he can't approach any child who has been at the creche since 1987. He should have had more concern, you know. Mark remembers Peter being a bit angry about the situation but kind of brushing it off, like he couldn't be bothered with it. Rob told me the time he did the interview with Ed and, and Peter sat there, you know, he made it reasonably obvious to Ed that he was gay and, and it was like red rag to a bull, you know. He, I don't think he even realised then the, the trouble that he was probably in. He, I, I didn't do anything, you know, I am who I am. And um, I'm not going to change just because you're trying to accuse me of something I didn't do and, and you have issues with the person I am. I would say he was bothered, annoyed about it. You know, he just thought he'd get over that hurdle and carry on like normal. I don't know when it probably realised this is going very pear-shaped, but by the time it did, she was a bit late. We've got a couple of extracts of those first exchanges between Alice and Ede from Lily Hood's book, A City Possessed. Ede kicks it off by stating that he believes the children. Then he starts asking questions about the girl we're calling Mandy. It was her disclosure that led to the reopening of the investigation. Her description of Alice was a bit off, so Ede begins there, but quickly gets into the allegations. We've had a couple of actors read their exchange. So she hasn't got the clothes completely right, has she? She hasn't mentioned my clothes correctly at all. That still takes us to the statements about the touching of her vagina. Did you ever do that? No. So she's lying about that? I've already answered that question. As far as I'm concerned, I've not touched her. She may not be lying about being sexually abused, but I've not touched her in any sexual way whatsoever. Let's fast forward down to this bit of the questioning where Ed asks... How long do you think it might take to touch a child's vaginal area? I wouldn't know, because I have never done anything like that. All right, you've given a lot of reasons why you couldn't have done it. But I'm asking you, as a man who is experienced with children, if someone could touch a child's vagina out of sight of others in 10 or 20 seconds. I'd be highly surprised. How about one minute? This is not my field. Again, I would be highly surprised. Two minutes? I don't know how long it would take. And Rob Harrison says as the investigation proceeded, that was a common theme of Ede's questioning of Alice. He recalls how the three of them would watch the children's interviews and then go through an interrogation. Ede would ask really absurd questions of him, like... How long does it take to abuse a child? You know, these sorts of ridiculous questions. And he was always doing his best uh, to be seen to be um, professional about his job, but his distaste 
um, kept seeping through. And the distaste was for a man who, up until 1986, his lifestyle was absolutely liable to get him into jail, you know. The Homosexual Law Reform Act in 1986 waved a magic wand, but that didn't mean to say that everyone uh, all of a sudden had a change in their view of people who were uh, homosexual. And Peter was outrageously um, uh, gay and Eddie Izzard, he's, he was Izzy Izzard style, you know, like he was out there and he was outrageous in the way in which he spoke to people. He tried really hard to sort of uh, keep himself uh, contained while we're talking to uh, Colin Ede. Um, but it was hard, it was hard going, you know, we'd be watching two to three hours of these damn tapes and then we'd be coming out of that and then he'd be, have to be questioned by Colin Ede, uh, who wrote every sentence down before he asked the question. So it was a long, laborious task. With Alice's arrest, the crash case morphed from rumour to headline news. And although Alice initially had name suppression, from this point on it was all over the newspapers. Former childcare worker faces indecency charge. Abuse queries unanswered. Name suppression of man lifted. Bronwyn, Peter Alice's former tutor who worked a floor above the crash, remembers his reaction to the arrest. Here's one thing he was proud of. His arrest took top notch in the TV news and not Fergie and Andrew's divorce down the line. Yeah, yeah, he figured he must be very important. <laughs> if he was, yeah, number one over them. Good evening to you. Christchurch and nearly 200 parents in Christchurch are having an anxious time at the moment following these revelations, these allegations that there might have been a continuing sexual abuse problem at an inner city daycare centre. Exactly one week before Ellis's arrest, psychiatrist Karen Zelas, who was the country's foremost child sex abuse expert, was interviewed on primetime television by Paul Holmes. There's a big meeting planned for next week, but in the meantime, what action should they take? Should you, for example, interrogate your child? yourself. It's most important that parents don't in fact question their children on the possible events that may have occurred. There are specialist interviewers who are being set up to interview these children um, over a period of time and it is very important that parents don't conduct their own interrogations. The Christchurch child psychologist, Karen Zellis. Now, that meeting uh, for the parents from the Civic uh, Child Care Centre is going to be held in Christchurch next Tuesday night. If you haven't uh, been invited, call up the council and uh, tell them. Now, we'll come back to the meeting shortly, but first, let's talk about Karen Zellis. She was hugely fundamental. And because she came as a professional and an expert in the field of um, child abuse and disclosure. It's Paula again. In March of 1992, Dr Zelas was overseeing the evidential interviewers, but not formally involved. There was a sort of a belief at the time that um, children don't make false disclosures and that if a child discloses, we must believe them. And she, she was really big on that. That was huge for Karen Zelas. That was the foundation of everything she did. This idea that children don't lie is absolutely key to this case and part of a bigger push that was happening around this time, a campaign called Believe the Children, 
We'll get into that more in the next episode. For now, though, let's focus on that advice from Zillis that parents shouldn't question their kids because it very quickly became clear that many parents did just that. They talked to their own children and even held playdates so the kids, and no doubt the parents, could talk about what happened at the crash. One crash mother, we're calling her Ms. Cedar, recalls being approached persistently by another parent. She phoned me several times, wanting me to bring in to playgroups to help her remember the abuse. And um, I remember saying, I don't think that that's a good idea. Um, she is sleeping well. She doesn't appear to have um, any um, signs that she's um, unhappy or suffered abuse. And I don't feel good about bringing her into a playgroup to help her remember abuse. And their stock standard was response, oh, she's um, pushing it down. She doesn't want to remember and she needs to come in and, and interact with the other children so that she feels comfortable, that she is safe and can disclose it. And I just felt that was, well, I thought it was a crock of shit, actually. And I just felt really um, uncomfortable with that. And um, I just felt like it was contaminating. You know, it was, it was and not only that, the, these kids were being made to feel special and almost rewarded for the more they came up with, it was, um, yeah, it was bizarre, really. This poor wee kid was just an absolute nervous wreck, and my sister lives on a farm and has ponies and things and animals, and it's all, you know, a little bit idyllic. And she said, look, love, you don't have to talk about anything you don't have to tell me anything. We're okay. I'll listen if you want to, but if you just want to have fun and play with us and have a nice wee sleepover for the night, you're most welcome. And it was like she said she could just see the weight drop off this child. Like, oh my God, thank God, I can just let it go. And um, just had a lovely time <laughs> riding ponies and playing in puddles and um, having a wee break. You'll remember Miss Magnolia, whose three-year-old son made the comment, I don't like Peter's black penis. She would later admit in court that she ignored the advice to keep discussions about the alleged abuse to a minimum. This is an actress reading her words. I don't remember what they were saying about that. I assume they would advise us not to do it. I intentionally didn't listen to that because I have a strong belief that secrecy in sexual abuse cases keeps it happening. And I felt it needed to be talked about. I rang the parents of friends because I was concerned for those kids. I didn't initiate contact with others. Several people rang me, and if I heard things about them, then I would tell them and recommend they talk to the parent concerned. I think I didn't go through the list and ring a lot of parents. I rang people associated with me as friends or my children's friends, and some other people contacted me. She was worried. If it was happening to one child, it could be happening to many. She had to act. And one of her actions was setting up a support group for parents. From around mid-1992, they met fortnightly. She said it was a chance to freely discuss the disclosures by the children. Although other parents would later deny they talked about them. And Ms Magnolia went further, conducting her own investigations, providing literature about child sex abuse and even distributing a list of all the allegations that had been levelled at Peter. I knew it was rare for only one child to be abused and I knew certain profiles of abusers are attracted to work with children. 
My friend had talked to a friend who knew someone who'd taken their child out of the crash earlier in 91 because the child had been saying something disturbing about Peter, and that clenched my feeling, I suppose. Peter's night in prison on his birthday was timed by the police to coincide with that large public meeting, the one mentioned in the Holmes clip. While the parents' meeting at the crèche prior to Christmas had been a small affair, this next meeting, just one day after Peter's arrest, was the biggie. It took place at Knox Hall, near the town centre. I've got that flyer from that meeting here, the handout, and interestingly, it stresses again that parents shouldn't be questioning their kids. And it's got some other advice. Do not put words into a child's mouth. And basic rule number one, believe what they say. Bromwyn, Peter Ellis's tutor, was at that meeting and she had a child and mokapuna at the creche. There was just, I don't know how many, uh, did somebody say something about 500 or something? I don't know, there was, the place was packed and there was somebody at the door taking names uh, about who we all were and checking that, yes, we were allowed to be there or whatever. What we wanted to know was what's going on and what's happening to Peter and what's he supposed to have done. What was said and done was correct, correct professional speak. Um, but in, a, in, in that forum and under those circumstances, it felt like stonewalling. We weren't a lynch mob, but we were a lot of pretty well-educated Um, pretty interested, involved parents who wanted to know what was going on. Um, Yeah, so it was not a comfortable evening. Sarah Crane, the psychotherapist we met in the last episode, was at the meeting too, although her memory of it is pretty hazy. It was very, like, crowded and crushed and a lot of... I mean, the families at that time were so distressed and so angry And I think even at that stage, that sort of big divide was happening in Christchurch. Like some people were outraged that anyone could possibly accuse Peter Ellis of something like that, you know, good person. And then there were other people who were completely vilifying him even before much was known. I called her right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, it's very interesting that you contacted me this week because I've been so conscious of the divide between people who've been vaccinated and people who haven't and the, the distress and the anger that that's causing some people and some families. And I was reminded, you know, of the feelings that I had then. All these people desperately trying to convince each other instead of being able to be with each other and communicate and talk and accept that we all have different perspectives. I suspect when people are, you know, that anxious, fearful, desperate, they don't think very straight and they want to be heard, they want answers. Like, I think people got very demanding and I think some of the officials, particularly the council, I mean, they were really on the defensive. They didn't know what to do. They'd never had to cope with anything like that before. So, I mean, it was pretty messy. Mm. Could one have handled that situation slightly differently? I think getting a big group of people in an enclosed space um, without, I suspect, a good enough agenda is just a recipe for disaster. Mm. That probably people needed to have more access to being able to debrief and get some information with an actual person rather than a letter beforehand. Zoe, 
another teacher, had worked at the Civic for ten and a half years. She looked after the youngest kids, next door to where Peter looked after the older ones. I asked if we could go to that. I said to the, I think I said to Gay, or that we, as staff, we should attend that meeting. It was going to be for parents, and we weren't allowed to. The council said we weren't allowed to. And that is the meeting where they, as the parents walked out, they gave them a letter saying that for every allegation they would get $10,000, and that was a lot of money for every allegation in those days. It's still a lot of money these days, and it's become one of the hotly debated points in this case over the years. Yeah, so the money would be paid by ACC. That's, of course, our No-Fault Accident Compensation Corporation. And its role is to help out accident victims and to prevent lawsuits mushrooming like they sometimes do in the US. What happened was that the council offered parents um, counselling that they would pay for, and they gave them a list of names of ACC approved counsellors, and I was on that list. So I did end up seeing a lot of families. The money wasn't meant to buy testimony or encourage families to embroider or even make up stories, of course. And it's not like reward money offered by police, as in a missing persons case. It's compensation, money to support the well-being of anyone who has suffered mental or physical injuries that could, quote, impair someone for a lifetime. And being the victim of sexual abuse is considered something that will stick with you for life. In 1992, as the case against Peter Ellis was growing, changes to the Accident Compensation Act were on the way. Lump sums were about to be scrapped and an independence allowance was about to be introduced. Malcolm Cox, who had kids at the crash, describes how parents were actively encouraged to apply for money. The city council arranged for a um, a social worker to liaise with the families of uh, crash kids. And we had a visit from her and I think just about every other family would have had a visit as well. And she came complete with a, a pack. Yeah, that pack contained details of all sorts of support groups, but also... Uh, also in that pack was the ACC forms. And in those days you could get a lump sum, but that was coming to an end. So the advice that we got was that uh, we should fill the form out. Then we had a claim in, and if it didn't turn out to be, uh, then it wouldn't matter. Uh, we didn't fill our form out because we didn't think that our daughter had been abused. So anyway, we took Lizzie to play at a friend's house and there attached to the fridge by a magnet was the ACC claim form. Uh, That household was strapped. There wasn't money and here was this form on the fridge And my guess is that that temptation would have been biblical, that it wouldn't be able to be resisted. I don't know whether they were claimants or not, but that dilemma must have faced a whole heap of other parents as well. One of the creche mothers made a pretty startling revelation in Lindley Hood's book, A City Possessed. Her words are read here by an actress. This counsellor said, you know you can claim $10,000 from ACC. She didn't even say up to, she just said $10,000. I was on the benefit and that was a lot of money. Everyone was doing it. I I didn't have a problem. Where do I sign? No problem. None whatsoever. The counsellor put in a report saying that my daughter was completely screwed up. 
I wondered if she'd got the kids muddled up, or maybe she wrote the same report for everyone. Anyway, the money came through really quickly. I think the um, ACC payments were a carrot that was just too good to refuse. This is Paula we're listening to. And they were maybe not a prime motivator, but maybe they would have got off the train a lot earlier if there weren't ACC payments. I Do think. you think a parent really consciously puts their child into the box of you've been abused just to get access to that 10k? It's hard to believe, but I think yes, I think they did. This definitely came up in my chats with Peter Ellis and former prison chaplain Stephen as well. And I'll always say this to this day, there, there were at least there are a good 40 parents, or groups of parents that sold their children for, for, for pieces of silver. How many pieces in the Bible? 30. 30 pieces of silver, there you go. And they actually spent it on themselves. If you knew how to play that game, I mean, there was rewards all over the place. Theoretically, the 10,000 was to be handed over for counselling, not to go buy yourself a trip to Bali or, or, or do up your daughter's bedroom or whatever, whatever. Well, that's again, my understanding, that's what the money was for, was for therapy. Not paid out, you know, to, to, to have a good time. Retired criminologist Greg Newbold said there was a spike in this type of ACC payment through the late 80s and early 90s. It became a, the cash cow for a lot of people. I mean... Once this caught on, people caught on to it, they could get a lot of money out of it. And so that in 1988, there were 221 claims. The next year, it doubled to 445. And it increased exponentially up to um, 2000 in 1992. And there it, it, it was a steady and exponential increase in the number of claims. In the final year, which was 1993, before they closed it down, there were 6,000 claims in just three months. Everyone jumped in to make their claim before it got cut off. So while there were just 221 sexual abuse claims to ACC in 1988, by 1992, as Peter Ellis was facing these allegations, that number was up to 2,000, which is like 10 times more. Well, that's right. And in late 1992, the main daily newspaper in Christchurch, The Press, had a headline that read, 500 sexual abuse claims in a week. They won't admit it, but it was out of control because they had no way of proving whether or not someone had been sexually abused. All they had to do was to convince a therapist. And the therapist had a vested interest because the therapist would then get the job of doing the counselling. Now, we don't want to make it sound as though it was super easy to claim. It wasn't. ACC didn't need corroboration. They didn't need to talk to the alleged perpetrator or even investigate the claim or check its validity. I, I guess it was kind of believe the victim. But you did need to have a medical certificate and a police report and a report from a counsellor, therapist, psychologist or psychiatrist. So you did have to go through the hoops. It wasn't easy. In 1995, TVNZ's current affairs programme assignment reported that ACC had paid out half a million dollars to 40 or so civic crash parents who claimed that their children had been abused by Peter. 
Virtually all of the claims were for lump sum payments of $10,000, with some parents claiming several times this amount, depending on how many times they thought their child had been abused. By April that year, so about four or five months after the first allegation, Detective Eid and his team were ramping up their efforts and more children were pointing the finger at Peter Ellis. In recent days, the investigation has escalated dramatically. First, police widened their inquiries to include children who'd been at the centre during the last 18 months. Those inquiries produced around 20 separate complaints. Today, One Network News learnt the investigation had broadened again. Now police are talking to parents of children who attended the centre any time since 1986. Now this was a pivotal moment in the case. Steadily, the one or two complainants became three, four and more. More children told stories of abuse, and those first claims that raised as many questions as they answered started to be corroborated by other claims. There was a certain energy around this whole drama um, that kind of drew people in, even though it was horrific. I'm talking to Susanna here, which is not her real name. She used to work alongside Peter Alice, teaching in the Tahamori program. I suppose the equivalent is, I don't know, during natural disasters or wartime, that there's certain buzz, there's certain excitement, you know, even though it's horrific. Um, and I think there was that that attracted some families into the fold a little bit more than was typical. Throughout the year, more than a hundred young children were interviewed, some multiple times. And remember, they were often being asked to recall events from months or even years earlier. By September, police had at least 32 allegations of abuse from more than 10 children. And Peter Ellis would have to respond to each allegation the children made. Lawyer Rob Harrison would pick him up from his flat and take him to the police station. He'd report on his parole, but also view these new evidential interview videos and be questioned about them. That actually was quite distressing because there are a lot of the children, um, as, as I know them, um, uh, for example, one child got under the table and she was hiding while she was answering the questions. In 2003, Peter Ellis gave this interview to TV3's Coronation. And I said to my trial lawyer, I said, I said, that child is not telling the truth. That is her, when she's been put uh, a question to her that she, she doesn't want to give a correct answer to, she actually used to hide. So, for example, if uh, one of the goldfish was sitting on the floor and you'd say to this child, did you do that? She would hide. And then she would say no, because you couldn't see her face. There was a two-and-a-half-year-old child who was asked um, whether uh, she wanted to come back. She stood at the door and went, oh, no. But the very next day, she was back. And that's, yeah, it was, it was very distressing watching those children, in my opinion, being abused by the very people that were interviewing them. Mary and Malcolm Cox felt increased pressure from other crash parents to get their daughter questioned by officials. Mary recalls one mother in particular being quite determined. She really wanted me to take Lizzie for an interview and to you know, get involved because I think she really wanted to make sure that her daughter was okay, you know, and she had faith in the system, whereas I had a bit of scepticism in the system. I wasn't as willing to be engulfed in it all. And, you know, the angst that parents have of wanting to do their best for their children. And so if you told all this information, you, you too want to do something about it. But, you know, I was 
quite sceptical and so reluctant to do anything. And we didn't think anything had happened to Liz. Yeah. And the only reason I agreed anyway for Lizzie to do the evidential interviewing was to put his mind at rest. But also, for me, like it was a quite stressful time between Malcolm and I at this point because, you know, we were not always on the same page, you know, during that thing. We, we weren't, Malcolm. And um, I can remember um, I was really mindful of the fact that if I wasn't a cooperative person with all of this, because I think they were looking for people to come forward, um, that I might be in some way targeted. I don't know whether I was imagining things. Well, they were certainly saying, if I can interrupt, that if you didn't support them, then you were supporting a child abuser. And I, we and were I mean, told that's that, scary stuff, isn't it? I was told that I was a paedophile by, you know, by my actions, a supporter of paedophiles. And so there was real stuff going on. Their daughter Lizzie was interviewed. I remember the, like, facade of the building that it was in. And I remember, like, as an older child, like maybe seven or eight, being like, oh, where was that building? Like, is that where I had the interview? You know, and... and and I'd kind of like, if we were driving around town, I'd sort of be like, is that that place? I don't know. Um, and so I think I think that was a real memory because I actually could point out the building later on, uh, you know, years later. The interview was filmed and like all evidential interviews later transcribed for the purpose of the court hearing. Detectives would often monitor the interview from an adjacent room. Parents were not allowed in with their children. The actual interview, I remember the feeling, obviously, like that's the most strongest memory. It was very uncomfortable. But I also remember, like, they uh, gave me some, like, drawing, like, colouring in things to sort of, you know, um, for me to sort of do some activities. Um, You know, it was quite uncomfortable in those interviews, sort of thinking, like, you know, Peter's my friend. Why, Why are you trying to make me say bad things about him? We went twice, didn't we? At least twice, maybe a third time. Did I we think go twice? We, we never did. ever went three times, Malcolm. Okay, I don't twice. think we even went twice, but... Yes, no, we went twice. Did we? Um, and the first thing is, uh, the first time uh, was I want Lizzie to come again because um, she'll trust me more the second time sort of thing. And, oh, and yeah, there was that. Yeah, uh, I do doesn't feel that. free to mm. talk to me yet, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I did agree to it. But I do remember after the second interview that when we were going back in the car and Lizzie was in the back seat, she said, I never want to go there again. Yeah, so we thought, well, that's, that, that's and done. That was enough for me. I we've thought, done our, we've I, done our bit. I felt that <laughs> horror that you feel when you have suborned your own good judgment to somebody else. Actually, looking back, it's the regret of my life. Oh, we refused. Plain and simple. Reese was a young father back in 1992. I could see what crap the witch hunt was at the start. There was no way I was going to put my kids through that. And I talked to a number of the parents who did put their kids in um, for uh, in for it, and they said they wished they hadn't done. They thought it was just the biggest crock of shit this side of anywhere. So, um, yeah, I'm really glad that we didn't. We were pressured, of course, as you would expect. But, um, uh, I mean, I may have been young at the time, but... Um, I did manage to, uh, you know, resist that kind of pressure. 
But of course, the pressure works both ways. When you get back to the basics of this case, you had children making claims of abuse, claims that had to be investigated. Disclosing was a scary and vulnerable thing that I did somewhat reluctantly. In 2022, one of the complainants spoke out for the first time in 30 years. Her words were voiced for a New Zealand Herald podcast, and she revealed what it was like opening up, first to her mother. I remember sitting on the couch at home, and I remember the furniture and the colour and what room we were in. And she said, there are some children who aren't very happy with what's happening at the creche. And I remember just freezing and they talk about that icy grip. And I just remember my heart racing. I made myself as small as I possibly could and tried to hide. And apparently I said in a high-pitched voice, you mean Peter? And I can only imagine how her heart must have sunk when I said that, as no parent ever wishes that to be true. She shared some memories of what had been done to her. I have a few distinct memories. A lot of them are just fragments or snapshots. I remember the inside of the building quite well and the layout and things like the colour of the carpet and the furniture. I remember we used to sit in a big circle to eat our lunch and I remember Peter would walk around behind us picking what he liked out of people's lunch boxes. I remember he had a particular fondness for gherkins. We used to do quite a bit of face painting and I remember when Peter did the face painting, he'd make me get undressed on my bottom half and I remember him drawing a blue or purple butterfly on my bottom and then I wasn't allowed to put my clothes back on to join the other kids outside in the sandpit. I had to stay half undressed and I wasn't particularly keen on that but didn't really feel like I had any power to say no. And this child wasn't the only one telling her parents what no parent ever wants to hear. This child went rigid. Uh, they were six. They hadn't been at the creche for nearly two and a half years. This child went rigid and then they fainted right in front of us when we just asked them that question. This is a story that's never been told before. In the next episode, we'll focus on what the children were saying. She said, Peter really likes hurting me, but she really likes hurting me. Whether the allegations were reliable. That was everywhere. I mean, how do you not believe the child? And it's very hard to argue that. And how the adults around them responded. Because everyone's going to be different. How, how do you expect, if your kid's sitting there telling you these things, how are you not going to say who was there? They were interviewed for long periods of time. I think some of them were interviewed for hours, I believe. Don't miss episode five, Total Recall. We were all quite shocked and surprised. We didn't see it coming. We were blindsided. Thanks for listening to Conviction, the Christchurch Civic Crash Case, hosted by Ellie Jones and Alexander Beezer. Conviction was made by Monsoon Pictures International with support from RNZ and New Zealand On Air. The series was written and produced with help from Aliki Siantolis, Liz Garten and Tim Watkin. Blair Stankpole and Rangi Poek were the audio engineers. The voice actors in this episode are Karen McCarthy, Justin Gregory, Matthew Hutching, William Ray, Josie Campbell and Bonnie Harrison. Thanks go out to RNZ's commissioning team, Kay Elmers and Tim Burnell, for giving this project the green light, and to Hingyi Kong for designing the webpage. 
and to Nataonga Sound and Vision for help with some of the archival audio, as well as MediaWorks, Discovery, Getty Images, TVNZ, and the Livingston Family Trust. The key image for the series is courtesy of North and South. Conviction can be found on the podcast page of the RNZ website. It's also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Follow the series so you don't miss an episode. 